everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to our final Bone to Pick interview of 2019. Uh, before we start in, we want to wish everybody very happy holidays and a very healthy and prosperous 2020. Uh, we're very fortunate to close out our Bone to Pick uh, year with a sit down with one of the great trumpet players on the international jazz scene, Mr. Jim Rotundi. We shot this interview a few weeks back when Jim was in town performing at Dizzy's with the supergroup One for All. Uh, Jim is currently the professor of jazz trumpet in Graz, Austria at the University of Music and Dramatic Arts. Prior to that, he had forged a very successful career in New York City um, as a jazz artist, performing on over 80 albums as a side musician. He has toured and recorded with a variety of jazz luminaries, including Ray Charles, Lionel Hampton, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Lou Donaldson, Curtis Fuller, Eric Alexander, George Coleman, just to name a few. He has released 16 CDs as a solo artist. Uh, he's currently the leader of the Jim Rotundi Electric Band, uh, as well as co-leading about a half dozen groups on the international and European jazz scene. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he is a founding member of the supergroup One for All. Uh, he hails from the great state of Montana and uh, received his education at the esteemed University of North Texas. Uh, my own connection to Jim goes way, way back, and one of my fondest memories is uh, playing with the great Bob Mincer big band. We did some touring and recording with Bob, and uh, Jim always sounded so wonderful. So super looking forward to this and getting a chance to hear about his extraordinary career. Uh, before we jump into the interview, uh, we really appreciate all your support through the years, especially this past year. Uh, if you like what you're hearing in the interview series and what we're doing here at Hypno Music, please uh, like our Facebook page as well as our YouTube channel. Uh, we always appreciate that. So without further ado, I'm going to turn everything over to the great Jim Rotundi. Great to see you again, Jim. Thank you for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule while you're uh, in New York. And uh, thanks for being with us. Man, thank you a million for uh, inviting me. And uh, I just want to say right up front, I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of, uh, of what you're doing here, man, because I think this, this archive of interviews you're doing is incredible. And, and I may have mentioned to you in an email, but one of the interviews, I've watched a whole lot of them, but one of them in particular with Malcolm McNabb, oh, wow. is regular dietary uh, 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 nutrition for some of my students because it's so, it's so on point about how he fixed a couple of problems, and I just love it, man. So thanks for all Man, doing thank it. you, Jim. That means a ton coming from you, and uh, I have a feeling today's interview is going to be a, a great stuff as well. well let's, dig in, let's dig in and see what we can find. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Let's talk about uh, your early uh, your early years growing up in Montana, which is typically not uh, producing that many great jazz artists, but obviously it, it can. Um, I know you came from a very musical household. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your uh, starting on piano and then uh, right. migrating over to trumpet. Just tell us about those early years. Okay, um, so my mom was a piano teacher, and uh, in our family, I, I'm the youngest of five kids, and in our family... Um, we all were required to take piano lessons from the age of eight until graduating high school. Mm. And uh, then we were given the option to, you know, take a, an instrument that was played in the band later on, uh, which I obviously wanted to do because for me, playing the piano was all by myself, you know, in a room or practicing exercises or whatever. But then the opportunity to play with other musicians was very appealing to me. So I jumped at the chance. Um, I started out actually, I wanted to play the trombone because my next oldest brother was already playing the trombone 
Um, and it's kind of funny, but my believe it or not, my next oldest brother is as tall as you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he was already playing the trombone, you know, and I said, I want to do that. And they said, well, show us what you got. And I couldn't even get to third, you know, and I still can't get to third. So, uh, uh, you know, they said, well, try the French horn. And I took it home for a day, and I just couldn't get a sound out of it. It was yeah, just yeah. awful. So I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to try the trumpet if it's okay. And they said, well, we, we can take one more, but okay. And so that's, that's how that got started. And then literally maybe only two years after that, a friend of mine in that same junior high band had uh, a Clifford Brown and Max Roach vinyl set. Mm. So, you know, to hear Clifford Brown two years after you start playing the trumpet in Montana was pretty <laughs> eye-opening, to say the very least, you know. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, I continued studying both instruments until uh, graduating high school and... and um, that's the Montana part of the story. There you go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the, the impact that Clifford has, right? When you when you listen to him, he's so still clear, and so perfect. It's, it's unbelievable. Just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And from there, you went to University of North Texas, which I guess back then was North Texas State. Is that correct? Correct. correct. And uh, well, actually, no. Let me interject one thing. I went to school for two years at the University of Oregon in Eugene as, oh, wow. a, as an undeclared major. I hadn't okay. actually made the decision yet and in fact just to back up a tiny bit yeah i mentioned my mom was a piano teacher my father was uh was the enforcer of the rules in our house but interesting <laughs> sort of paradox about that is is that he wasn't really thrilled when i told him i wanted to be a musician after having forced me to take piano lessons for a you know for however many years so um you know, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I, there's no ill will there or anything like that, but I just think it's kind of funny. And, and I did kind of hover for two years thinking, well, maybe I will see if there's something else I want to do. Uh -huh. But all I was doing was practicing. I wasn't going to classes or anything. You know? so, and I was spending all the money he sent me buying vinyl. So it, it seemed like it was a pretty clear choice at that point. You know? All right, cool. Well, University of Oregon is a great, uh, well, it's a great campus and it's, school there as well. Yeah, right? yeah. And now it's a super great program. Yeah, too, yeah, indeed. Um, Okay, so after those couple of years, you did end up at, at North, North Texas, Texas, which right. I'm sure was uh, uh, very inspiring and motivational. What was what was uh, oh that God. experience like for you? Well, talk about eye-opening. Um, so some of the cats that were there that you know well, well, Frank Green, Frank mm -hmm. Green, sure. uh, one of the most recorded and heard trumpet players <laughs> on the planet now, and, and, and what a great indeed, guy, too. I just love him. And, uh, and also... Mike Williams, who played lead on the Count Basie band for lead trumpet on the Count Basie band for thirty some years, just retired. Mm. Uh, he and I and Frank were in the same lab band trumpet section together. So, I mean, the way those guys were playing at that age, especially Frank. I mean, I remember hearing him when he was like seventeen or eighteen, and I, I just had no conception of how you could have that ability on the trumpet at that age. Wow. Okay. So when I got to North Texas, my complete groove was learning how to play the instrument. I mean, I had been listening to the music and digging that and doing the piano stuff, but, you know, I felt like, wow, if this is where the level of the trumpet is at university level, then I've got some work to do. So that's, you know, I, I studied with Don Jacoby down there, and he uh, he showed me, as he showed a lot of people, just a tremendous amount, you know. Mm -hmm. about was, uh, was Leon Braden still there, or was Neil? He had actually just 
retired. Neil started something like two years before I got there. Okay, and for those who don't know, we're talking about Neil Slater, a great yeah. educator and uh, arranger, yes, yes. And, uh, composer. And, uh, personality. Personality, <laughs> yes, yes. The legendary stories about his uh, motivational need, tactics need, need, with need, the band. Yes, yes. We can't, cannot talk about <laughs> we can't this. To, they're effective, though. Like, oh, they're very yeah, effective. They certainly yeah. are. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's talk about um, one thing that stood out when uh, do a little bit of research for this interview was uh, how uh, you won the uh, ITG trumpet competition uh, back in 1984. And I know right now that seems probably like something that's not even on your radar, but I know like um, those things are pretty important, you know, like those, and, and they bring a lot of visibility to a young player like yourself in 1984. Tell me a little bit about that and what, if, if you can, whatever okay. your memories were of, of yeah, that sure. experience. Um, so, uh, first of all, it was in on the campus of Bloomington, Indiana, IU, and I was really excited about that because I got to visit Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which was very important <laughs> to me at that time. Okay. So, so that was that's one of the things that I remember, but also I just remember being completely again, sort of overwhelmed by the whole community that I was meeting and all these great trumpet players of all different, you know, sort of styles and, and, and proficiencies. And um, I feel like, you know, I, I sort of remember playing that day for the, in the competition and not sort of like standing on air or something. I don't even remember what the senses, <laughs> what the sensory thing was like. And I really want to also make sure that, to, to be correct about it, I actually tied for first place with uh, another wonderful trumpet player, Craig Frederick, who was also okay. studying at North Texas at the time. Oh wow! Okay. So they, yeah, they, okay. they gave us both first place in that nice. okay. competition. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, let's talk about moving to New York and and your career starting in earnest. Then um, I think now, uh, when you look back on it, it's it seemed overwhelming at the time when we moved to New York. But yeah. now it seems like even you know when I look at young folks uh, today. Uh, what their task is. So I think it's always helpful for them to hear somebody like yourself yeah. who's a successful jazz artist, like what, what your path was like. But in particular, before we get into your recording career and all that, but what were those, what were those early months and years like Initial in New York for you? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I would say that, so I visited New York on a spring break when I was in North Texas. And I remember thinking, as I was walking off the plane, I'm going to live here. Before, I mean, I was, really? I was so taken in by the, you know, the wrecked cars right next to the highway, <laughs> and and like I thought, wow, this is this is heavy, you know. I mean, I, I come, come from Montana, and then Texas is a, is clean and nice and everything, you know. And I had never really seen anything like that. And and also, I should add that my parents are both New Yorkers. My mom's from Brooklyn, and my father was from Newark. Oh wow! So okay. it was in a, also in a way very very much spiritually like coming home for me even though I had never really spent any time there I just felt immediately like this is going to be my spot mm -hmm. and I should also say that um, before I got to New York I actually thought I was pretty good <laughs> and you know I, I thought yeah man I, I can I'll play some changes I know some tunes and you know I, I lived in a I lived in a place in Brooklyn with four other Guys, and uh, one of them you probably know, uh, George Whitty, the cat that of course that produced yeah. all the yeah. stuff with amazing. Randy yeah. and Michael and yeah, all that, just incredible musician. And, and he was living in this in the room right next to mine, that was a converted office. It was kind of like this, and the cats put their walls up by themselves with no insulation or no nothing <laughs> in the walls. So we heard everything that everybody was practicing. We heard, and um, so I got to hear George actually through my wall sequence that whole. Return of the Breakfast. Wow! And then oh Mike and Randy were coming by the crib, you know, just to, 
to check it out and see what you know. So that was that was deep, you know. That wow. was super sensory overload there. Um, but that was maybe just a little bit later when I first moved to town. Um, I kind of hooked up a little bit right away because I, I um, had a friend who was subbing on a off Broadway show called Beehive, which was playing at the Village Gate, hmm. and it was like an R and B review of girl groups. Okay. Um, from the from the sixties, I think, and like uh, you know, so we were doing Aretha Franklin and we were doing Dusty Springfield and stuff that I had never done before, which was a very cool experience for me because horn section, go and and I got I got the touring the tour with it because the, the cat Chris Anderson decided he didn't want to go okay and so uh, he, he gave it to me and and that was like only three or four months after I moved to town so I was kind of really feeling good yeah you know for a while and then and then I came back and it really slowed down and I started doing a lot of weddings and uh, the kind of stuff that a lot of musicians have to do to to establish themselves and meet other cats and all that stuff and um, so that would have been like the first four years that I was here. Okay. And then you, you alluded to Ray Charles. That happened in 1991. Okay. So that was kind of like your first big, big break. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had been out. I went out on the road for, uh, for uh, a few months with the Artie Shaw okay. band from Boston. It was a great band. Who, was really the, uh, was, who led that? The, uh, uh, Dick Johnson. Dick Johnson. Right, right. Incredible right. player, too. But, right, um, right. So uh, that was my first kind of what I would say pro road gig. Okay. But then I that didn't last long, and then and then Ray happened in 1991. Nice. And that must you know the the stories about Ray are as legendary as the stories about Buddy Rich and you know all these <laughs> these uh, yeah. eclectic, interesting band leaders of that period. But uh, that must have been amazing just hearing him sing every night. Though. Oh yeah. man. Well, I often think about how much I learned on that gig and. Um, so I'll t I, I like to tell the story of how I got the gig, too, because yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, so in that loft I was living in in Brooklyn, we had one of those uh, answering machines that had a cassette tape in it. Obviously, that doesn't exist anymore, but for those of you, for you, <laughs> um, that we, had, we had an answering machine with a cassette in it. And um, one of the cats on the band was a friend of mine, and he had told me some months earlier that there was going to be a turnover in the next tour, like four trumpet chairs. Mm. So uh, he said, send him a tape with your group. And I didn't have a group. I did have a turntable and I had uh, the, uh, the Jamie Ebersole with Charlie Parker. Okay. <laughs> so, and I had a cassette, play, uh, cassette recorder at that time where you could plug in a source. So I put on that thing and put a mic in it and I just played along with it and sent it to Ray and told him it was my band. Even though you could hear the scratches in the, you know. And uh, so, you know, I was playing like Yardbird Suite and the blues and whatever. And so I came home one night from whatever, and uh, there on that little cassette, you know, Gemma's brother Ray um, sending you a ticket. You'll be out in L.A. in next week or whatever it was. And I just assumed, you know, this, this is somebody playing, you know, cranking me. You know? <laughs> so and and a, a regret that I have is that I did not keep that cassette because oh man, yeah, that would, that would have been the bootleg Ray Charles of all time <laughs> for me, you know. But yeah, so that was a that was a great gig, man. Uh, I really liked it. Some people. Tell different stories, but um, what I loved about Ray was, and it's a lesson for every musician, I think, and for people in other walks of life as well, is that he was always at least 100% no matter what was happening. I mm. never heard him on a night when he wasn't completely killing. Wow. Okay. And I remember a night, one night in Italy, when he had like 103 fever and he was drinking his thing all day, so he was, you know, like all the way in the bag and had a fever. <laughs> and his synthesizer went out. 
So they had to bring a, a Steinway out on the stage. And that turned out to be the best night that I remember playing with him because everybody was like, you know, leaning in and really checking out what he was doing because they, they couldn't really hear it like we used to be able to hear it. And man, he just was so on fire that night. Wow. On the, just the big Steinway open doing the thing, man. It was, it wow. was great. It was great. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, I was, I sort of knew how prolific you are as a sideman, but also as a leader, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But just as for a second, you've uh, recorded on over 80 albums as a sideman, as a jazz artist, is, right. is uh, substantial to say the least. Um, can you, uh, would, would, at the risk of excluding some, just do what you have, yeah. but uh, just some favorite memories, some favorite, uh, some, some things that jump out at you, maybe mm -hmm. important uh, recordings that uh, helped uh, in, in the growth of your career? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the first ones I think of as a sideman was a record that I played on under the leadership of drummer uh, Ray Appleton, Otis Ray Appleton. He was from Indianapolis and he made some records with Freddie Hubbard. And um, he put together a sextet with Slide Hampton, Charles McPherson, Peter Washington, John Hicks, and me. And I was young. I mean, wow. I, I hadn't made any records really yet. And Slide wrote all the music. Wow. And that is, and it, we recorded at Rudy Van Gelder's. I mean, for me, every everything that I would ever think about was like bubbling in my head all at once, you know. And uh, I, I'm happy to say I got through it. You know, I mean, it was such a such a great. And it, I, I just remember the first solo break that Charles McPherson took. Everybody in the studio went like, "What the?" You know. And and it's a great record. It's called uh, Killer Ray Rides Again. And and check out that thing that Charles McPherson plays because it's. Uh, it's on Spotify or wherever, you know, check yeah, it out, yeah. it's really heavy. It's wow. just like, you can just imagine the other cats adjusting their headphones and all of a sudden this thing comes through and it's like, oh my God, we're doing, we're doing like this today, okay, all right. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was a good one. And of course, my first date as a leader for, for Jerry Teakin's Crisscross label, of course, will always stick in my mind because I just felt like that was a huge milestone that I had to go past. I always wanted to, you know, and I never... You know, we never know what the future is going to bring or whether that kind of stuff is going to work out, you know. Sure. So I just felt like I was, it was a great time to do it. And he, he called me and, and he went, he used to go out to the clubs and, and listen to young cats. And, and there, would, there would always be the, the word spreading through the community. Yeah, Tegas is in town. He's going around to clubs to listen. And I, I was playing at Smalls with Eric Alexander and uh, he came through and, and, uh, I, I always remember this. Eric called me up the next day. And he said, "I think you're going to do a record for Teakins." He called me up last night and he said, "The little man was burning." <laughs> so, so, so that was so. After that, you know, sure enough, he called me. He called me. Uh, he called me a few few uh, weeks later, and we did our first date. And uh, you know, he's another guy. I feel the community at that time. You know, because you remember a lot of cats were were making CDs then. That that doesn't really exist now. But at that time, you know. You could hope to to establish something of a career making CDs by labels that would support you and well not you know at least get the music out there and stuff and that was right. a big thing you know that was, was yeah that, it sure was I mean yeah. that's and, and unfortunately it's a, uh, it's drifting away for yeah, sure I mean there are a few it's more challenging now yeah, than yeah. ever but, but yeah. Uh, yeah that's a great story now, just to go back to the previous one though but it must have been awesome to play slides charts at, at that stage oh, of the game because each one of his is and a these were yeah sure and these were some tunes that I didn't. I didn't know we wrote a tune called the Peanut Butter Song. I forget who we wrote it for, but man, it's 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 so great. 
you know, I mean, you know how perfect slide stuff is. It, there's, oh. it just it plays so beautifully when you play it. I mean, it's it, just, is, it, it lays so yeah, well. Yeah, it's so, so, so yeah. genius, genius. Well, let's let's do shift over a little bit to your to the solo side of your career. Um, okay. Sixteen albums as a as a leader. Uh, very impressive catalog to say the least. Um, talk to us a little bit about some that you've done more recently okay. uh, since the, since your uh, uh, initial flight there with uh, Jerry but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and also if you would talk about uh, one for all which is uh, a group you co-lead with Steve Davis and Eric Alexander and uh, it's which you're in here in, in, in town yeah. doing but uh, yeah, that's a yeah. very uh, uh, heralded group to say the least yeah it's a fun very much a fun band to play with um, well so um, some of the you wanted me to talk about some of my own dates um the things that i recall um i did i was fortunate enough to do in series different dates for like three or four different labels which was cool because the process for making those was different with different producers as mm. i'm sure you know mm -hmm. so uh like for example i did i did a record date with a label called sharp nine which is no longer in business i believe but um he was really much more willing to let me do whatever I wanted to do. Jerry Teakins, as I recall, had sort of a list of, he wanted a blues, he wanted a standard ballad, and he wanted something that sound, you know, sounded like it. He, at that time, he kind of changed his philosophy at, at more recently, but, but at that time he was really sort of, he had a, almost like a template, I guess you might say. Uh -huh. And it was cool, I enjoyed that challenge, but then when I got to do something else for somebody else, I realized how cool it is to just say, okay, I got this music that I want to do, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And one really great recollection I have for that Sharp Nine label is making a record called Destination Up, which he, in which he allowed me to use Mulgrew Miller to play the piano, who was a hero of mine and pretty sure. much everybody else's yeah. at that time, you know. Of course. And that was just so deep, you know. I, I wrote the music and... And there he was, and and uh, yeah, that was a, that's a favorite recollection wow, of mine. Wow, that's very cool, very cool. Yeah, it's, uh, another sad loss of losing Mulgrew. Well, well, the piano losing. world has taken some hits recently. Yeah, as we it know, certainly it's has. Really yeah, very, very unfortunate. Uh, and and another, I had the good fortune to have the great Harold Mayburn on one of my dates as well, and mm. that's a very strong recollection as well because he he was so strong, you know, that. You really didn't have to say anything. Like if you're going to play a ballad, he would easily play just a complete concerto for you before you played a note, <laughs> and it just set everything up so well. And it's just professionalism in his yeah. view. Uh, you know, yeah. he wasn't thinking of it as any great gift. That's just like that's the way he did it. You know? Yeah, that's the way you did it from that time. You know, and that that was for a young guy like me. That was really great. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, I apologize. I asked you two questions at once, you but I want to talk about one also, too. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. And, and uh, it's curious just how that how that group got started because yeah. you guys have been around uh, quite a while now. And yes, I've done a lot of recording and playing right. all the time live. Uh, right. What was the uh, so the way that happened was um, I don't know. Some of our viewers may not remember or be aware of a club that was on the Upper West Side called Augie's, mm -hmm. but Augie's was uh, sort of a college bar for the Columbia University students, and it's in the location that now is Smoke. Right, okay. And But it was a completely different kind of a scene. It was like a, it was like a sort of like a thrift store that had music every night, you know? <laughs> And it, we didn't get paid, we passed the hat. Uh -huh. And Joe Farnsworth inherited Fridays and Saturdays there, my friend Joe Farnsworth, the drummer, the great drummer, 
And so I started doing a lot of those with him, with Eric Alexander, because they were going to William Patterson together. So they were already completely tight. And I knew Joe from, because his older brother, James, the late James Farnsworth, he and I studied at North Texas. So that's how I met Joe. So Joe started putting that band together. And then we would always go hear Art Blakey's band. And as you know, Steve Davis was the final trombonist mm -hmm. in Art's band. So, and Joe's from, from Massachusetts and Steve was in Hartford, so they were sort of friends. And so Steve started coming by and playing at Augie's with us when he was free, making it a three, a three horn front line. Uh -huh. And that started to gel it. I mean, we didn't have arrangements or, or compositions or anything at that time, but all the stuff we knew we were making into arrangements on the bandstand. And then I got a weekend at, um, at Smalls, and we had been going over to David Hazeltine's crib in, down in uh, Chinatown, because he, he just liked to write, and he wanted to hear it for three horns, and he was living with Brian Lynch. Oh, wow. They had that okay. crib together yeah, down yeah. there. And so Brian was always in the next room shedding, and I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in here, you know. But so Dave was writing these great arrangements, and I got this weekend at Smalls, and I said, well... Let's bring Dave, bring these arrangements, it'll be a band. And that really was like the first, oh, wow. that okay. would have been in 1993 or 4, I would say. Okay. And then um, we, never, we didn't have a steady bass player. Peter Washington was doing a lot of it, and John Weber, who now is the steady bass player, was doing a lot of it. And then David Williams, who was playing with Cedar Walton, did some of it. And Dwayne Burno, the, great, the late, great Dwayne Burno, and... Uh, Quite a few other cats mm -hmm. would come in, and uh, but for the recordings, it was usually Peter and then later John Weber. So the the band now, as it exists, is myself, Eric Alexander, Steve Davis, David Hazeltine, Joe Farnsworth, and John Weber. Nice, and, nice. Uh, yeah, it's you know just playing last night as I as I mentioned to you, I got off the plane at four thirty and we hit at seven thirty, <laughs> and it's like we didn't eat nothing, man. I mean, I was <laughs> tired, but other than that, it. I mean, the band is so automatic, it's so, everybody just hears and thinks the, the, the same way. It's, it's great, man. It's really cool. That's awesome. Are you guys doing any recording coming up? Uh, well, we did one for the Smoke Sessions label, which is Paul, who owns Smoke, the jazz club, has a label, for whom I, I neglected to mention, but he, I did my last leader CD for him as well. That's oh, cool. Dark okay. Blue. Okay. And it's uh, one of which I'm also very proud. And we did one, the group One for All did one for Paul, two summers ago and I think we're talking about doing one in the spring so nice all right yeah, well we'll look for that rolling. look for that for sure um let's switch gears again and talk about uh your role as a professor uh oh, yeah. in particular what you're doing uh, in Graz and, and the program we were talking before the interview started about uh what a great program it is it's got yeah. tons of history now and now you've got uh Tremendous faculty yourself, Luis Bonilla, lots of uh, international uh, greats. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But just tell us about the program over there and okay. uh, and how that's how that's been going for you. I can't okay. remember how long you've been over there. Down it's there. amazing, but I'm I'm starting my ninth year. I can't okay. believe wow. myself that I've been out of New York for that long. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's been such a great thing. And I just want to say just a little bit about teaching before that. Yeah. Teaching has has become. I I never envisioned myself as a teacher. I don't know if anybody ever really does anyway but you know I came to New York to play like most cats do you know but now of course the reality is most players have a teaching segment of what they do and what I found pretty much immediately was it really defined whether I know what I'm talking about or not mm -hmm. it, it, for me to explain it to a student so that he or she can understand it clearly and work on something 
means that I have to have a really clear idea about what I'm doing. So I actually, before I took the grads gig, I was teaching at Purchase College for a while. Okay. And, uh, and the final year at Rutgers as well. And so I was already sort of putting my teaching together. So I was, when I got to Graz, I felt like I was pretty much ready. You know, I had a pretty clear idea um, right away. And and uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Ed Neumeister, was mm -hmm. already there. And he helped me a bunch getting acclimated to the, the system there, which is slightly different than anything I had dealt with before. And um, so my, my job, as it is right now, my duties just in, in, involve individual lessons okay and uh, I have a, a studio of 15 students and they're a um, wide variety of, of styles and approaches and they're all I'm really happy with all of them and of course proud of all of them and and proud to be a part of that program um, you mentioned Luis Bonilla he's our newest uh, addition and and uh, we have a really diverse program that's sort of uh, I would say geared maybe a little more towards fundamentals than other universities in, in, in Europe are. But, you know, we, we, it's very much like a family there. You, if, as a student and as, as, as a teacher, we're, we're very close there, and, and I, I really like that. It's, it's, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, I've heard so many good things about it, so it's uh, great to hear that directly from you. It's yeah, very, yeah, yeah. very cool. Um, talk to us a little bit about, I know you're working uh, with a lot of groups in Europe. Yeah. Uh, how how is if you were to compare the scene in Europe in terms of playing and maybe even more from a playing perspective than a teaching perspective? But how would you compare and contrast it to say your your years here in New York? Well, the first thing I guess I would say is that um, just because of the the uh, logistical thing of me having lived in New York, it was more difficult for me. To, to be in Europe as often, I mean, now that I live there, for me to go, for example, to Italy, now I go to Italy maybe six or seven times a year and tour with, with different groups, and that's, of course, you know, facilitated by my living there. Um, and I would say that uh, it's easier for me, having established the reputation to whatever degree that I have, to, to sort of make that work now. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago or 15 or 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been so easy, I'm pretty sure. But uh, you know, the level of musicians over there is very high as well. A lot of, and and there are more and more Americans coming over. Um, so I'm I'm playing with really good musicians, and uh, you know I, I'm working on new music all the time and stuff. So it's actually been quite a boon for me artistically. I think mm. really creatively, I'm I'm working on a lot of new things now and new musicians, new styles and stuff like that. And do you, um, the, the electric band that you yeah, do you yeah. believe that out of Europe, uh, or is it mostly... It is out of Europe. In, in fact, well, it originally was uh, a band called Full House that was uh, started here in New York in, in 2003, co-led by David Hazeltine and I. But then that gig finished, we were playing at Smoke every week, and that gig finished in 2006, and we kind of let it go. And then when I got the job teaching in Graz, I kind of made it a resolution that if I met some students that I thought merited it to be in a band that I would lead, I would use it as a student group to teach them and give me a, a chance, you know, to write new music in that other kind of format, you know, and experiment with, with sounds and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it, it, again, it turned out to be a creative thing for me, an uh, opening for me, you know, because so, I, I didn't plan to do it when I moved over there, but then I thought, oh, you know, 
this could be a great thing on a lot of different levels. So yeah. that's how it happened. You know? Wow, that's very cool. I'm sure for the students it'd be yeah, an opportunity. Like it. Yeah, no, yeah. I, could, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, are you active? Uh, I think I think the answer to this is yes. But tell us a little bit about going. Are you active uh, as a guest artist in Europe uh, at various schools around? In different yeah. obviously there's many different countries you can go yeah, and, uh, yeah. And um, yes well one nice thing about this job in Graz also is that the school is very supportive about exchanges and, and visiting other institutions so yeah I mean I've been uh, we actually have an exchange with with IU Indiana as oh, well. really? and I haven't done anything there yet in that capacity but I've done all over Europe I've done you know France and Spain and and Italy and Germany, uh, we have these exchanges, and I've gone and done things with, you know, played with the big bands and stuff like that. And yeah, it's 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 been a great um, educational sort of power source for me too. You know, mm -hmm. we'll meet all these different cats, and there are so many great great programs of, as I said before, kind of different varieties of, of approaches, which is which is cool. Yeah, yeah. very cool. I remember when we did uh, one of Bob Minster's records, and you played uh, a solo on uh, his arrangement of "Someday My Prince Will Come." Um, I'm pretty yeah. sure. That, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm not sure about that because I remember I only made one record with Bob at the Manchester. Yeah. And I played on that blues in concert D, and I played on another. I don't think I played on. I think I could be. I? I could be. I, I think, but I'm, you know, I can't remember where I parked my I car an I, hour ago, so, you know. <laughs> you want to know why I played on, on F7, uh, <laughs> F sharp, you know, is that what you want to know? <laughs> I want to know how you make that sound so good, that's uh, what I want to know. But I, I, I heard a, a, a distinct um, influence from Freddie Hubbard. Oh. And you're one of the, the few who have really been able to kind of take his language and vocabulary, make it your own, but also um, just... I'm not asking it very well, but talk to us about the influence that Freddie Hubbard oh, had on you. And and thanks thanks for for the comparison because I, uh, if anyone would ever think that it's it's unflattering to be compared to someone else or unoriginal or whatever, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> the, the greatness of Freddie Hubbard cannot be denied, obviously. So yeah. And and actually, um, Freddie, we became friends. Um, unfortunately, it was after he started having sort of technical problems playing the instrument, but. Um, I used to go hear him anytime he came to New York, and, and in fact, going back to North Texas days, he used to come through there a lot too. And that was when when he was playing incredibly well. You know, um, one of the one of the most profound musical experiences I can remember was him playing in a quartet with Cedar Walton and Billy Higgins and mm. uh, bassist Herbie Lewis, and he was just so deep on every level. You know, and. Um, so when I came to New York and when he would come through, I would always make a point to go to his hotel and visit him and call him up and, and hang out, you know, and, and uh, try to, to um, how should I say it, decipher the message? Can we say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Decode the message? I like it. Yeah. You know, the thing is because, like, if you ever met or, or have seen interviews of Freddie Hubbard, he was a guy who's, just like his playing, his mind moved very fast. He didn't really hang out on one subject for a long time. So if you were going to ask him specific things about chords or something and it changes in a tune or something he wouldn't maybe be so direct in answering that mm. but then he might go over to the piano and show me and I'd get more information from that than anything that he might have said and um, you know he he uh, I just when I first heard him it was pretty much I would say I, I'm talking about on record I would say it was kind of all-consuming I just said 
because I was late getting to Freddie Hubbard, you know, as I mentioned, Clifford Brown, and I, I had listened to guys like Woody Shaw and Blue Mitchell and Lee Morgan and Art Farmer and a lot of other cats before I got to Freddie. In fact, I sort of thought for some reason when I was in high school that Freddie Hubbard was like a high note guy or something, you know, because he did some of those <laughs> records in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, right. He did, he did, he did, side of he did that thing. Right. But then, then when, I, when somebody showed me the, the 1960s stuff, like a record called Ready for Freddie, I was like, you know, I just I couldn't. Again, one of those kind of things where I couldn't believe it, and I had to try to approach it, you know. And that's how, I mean, that's how that happened, I guess. I think, I really think a lot of trumpet players, even today, have a, a tremendous influence from Freddie Hubbard in there, maybe whether they're aware of it or not. But mm -hmm. it, his, uh, I feel like his influence was so all-encompassing in certain conceptual ways that there's no way to get around it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I had I can't remember who told me this, but they they said uh, Freddie Hubbard is the Muhammad Ali of trumpet. Yeah, and I yeah, love that yeah, analogy yeah. because it's just like it's just everything. It's everything is there, you know, from the physical side, technical side mm. to the the depth of harmonic Creative, knowledge, everything. Yeah. everything. And yeah. then he's got the personality yeah. on top of that yeah. too. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. It's a major influence on not just trumpet players, but uh, all brass players, all, all, everybody, really. Absolutely. Um, I have to ask you this. I'm not really a big equipment guy myself, oh. but I always get people in, and they say, why didn't you ask him what his equipment what is? Equipment? So oh, I, I should have brought I'm my horn then. I, well, no, even if you could just tell us what, what, uh, what kind of equipment yeah, you're using sure. these days. Um, so I have this horn that I bought from Bill Mobley, the great trumpet player yeah. who lives here in town. Um, I actually bought it from him something like 30 years ago, 25, something like that. It's a Colicchio made in 1945, Dominic Colicchio. Oh, wow. And oh, made okay. when he was still living in New York. And I've been through all the kinds of trumpets that there are, the new ones and the, and the old ones, the Con Constellations. I never played a Monette, but um, mostly because I could never afford one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. Cut, cut that out. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, you know, this horn, I always came back to it. I, uh, whenever something would on another horn would start to feel funny and I'd say, yeah, it felt good for a minute, but now, but I always come back to this Caligio and now it's, now I, I don't even really consider that I would change. It's yeah. such a great horn and it's, the sound is just, I really feel like it's, it's the kind of sound that isn't found anymore. The quality of metal, it's just like, it's heavy, man. It's not heavy, you know, but it's really deep and really... It's a great horn, man. I just yeah. yeah. And Freddie played a click for he played a click but he played the the horn that he played was completely different in style. His was a super large bore with a big five and a half inch bell. My horn's sort of more like a Besson or a Benj, just smaller. Okay. And easier okay. to play, I think. Yeah, interesting. What about mouthpiece? My mouthpieces are made by a cat named Dave Hauser, who's in New Jersey, hmm. and uh, nothing really radical. It's basically a modification of a of a three C. Uh, with um, I made had him made a, a heavier blank that's sort of like a Monette mouthpiece. And... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you had uh, some advice for young folks coming up, which I'm sure you give out all the time to your students, but somebody looking at your career and starting now and saying, "I want to forge a career and be like Jim Rotondi," hmm. um, what, what advice would you have? Hmm. Well, I think the first advice that I would give is. Now that we're in the information age and it's so easy to find a, a small example of what it is we're trying to do in the music or recording, whatever, I found that musicians don't do the research all the way anymore. Mm. It's easy, it's, it's sort of instant gratification on the phone. And um, 
I feel like we need to, uh, and this is something I, I really impart to my students all the time, do the research the right way, whatever you're trying to learn. Because mm. it's usually a little deeper than one example of whatever it is you're, you're okay. looking at, you know. And so, you know, I, I encourage students, like, if, if they go out to a jam session and somebody calls a tune that they don't know, you make a note of that and you go home and you learn it. And the next time you go back, you know it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And this way you're, you're building up your, your stuff, but you're also, you're developing your strength, your confidence, your, your musicianship, your artistry, all that kind of stuff, you know. And I feel like, I feel like it's easy to not do that work now, but I, I think it's critically important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. Jim, I can't thank you enough for coming out. It's been an absolute been blast talking to you today. Um, and just summing up, you're, unfortunately this interview will come out after you're already done at Dizzy's this oh, week, man. but you're at Dizzy's this week. Yeah. What's what's uh, on the horizon in terms of uh, projects, tours, et cetera, et cetera? Well, as I mentioned, we're hoping to try to put a record together with One for All, so I'm probably going to go home and try to write a couple of things to get ready for that. Cool. Um, I have a, a lot of touring both in and out of the USA coming up in the, in the fall here, and... Um, you know, and of course, teaching is is always happening. You know, so it's always uh, the rotation of the things that I do. And then my wife and I have a home in France, which is my retreat. That's where okay. I go to, to to cool out. You know, we got a cocker spaniel. Nice. And uh, that's the, my groove. Yeah. So uh, that's that's what's happening for me. That's know. awesome. That sounds groovy. Jim, thanks so much. Mike, thanks a bunch, man. I really appreciate it. My my pleasure. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the interview with Jim as much as I did. So great to hear about his extraordinary life in music. Uh, once again, we appreciate all your support. Uh, we look forward to bringing you a bunch of exciting new interviews in 2020. Give us a like on Facebook as well as on YouTube. Have happy holidays, and we will see everybody next time on Bone to Pick.